Welcome to Zero Five O. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Engineers have designed and built many of the machines and structures on our planet that contribute to climate change, and some environmentalists believe we should turn our back on this profession, instead creating some form of agrarian model of living. But in reality, the anthropogenic carbon load on the planet is so large, we need engineers more than ever to configure our machines and systems to reduce carbon impact. In this episode, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Torrell Big, who is Chief Carbon Reduction Engineer at Tunnelly Engineering. And in this role, she leads a team who measure carbon impact and provide engineering solutions for organizations to reduce their emissions. We love solutions on the show, and I'm really excited to welcome Torrell to the show. And uh, welcome to Zero Five O, Torrell. Great to have you here. Thank you very much, Bruce. I am really pleased to join you here. Excellent. And it's great. I think it's the first time we've had an engineer on the show. So um, uh, no pressure. Uh, you're you enormous, enormous profession that you're going to be speaking up for. So uh, great to have you here. And I'm going to I'm going to get straight in there um, with, with a question that will probably take you a few minutes to uh, answer is, or maybe not, maybe it's a one word answer. Can engineers save the planet? It, it is a great question, Bruce. Thank you. So Engineers absolutely can save the planet. We are best placed for saving the planet. We are critical thinkers and practical problem solvers. We have an enormous problem to solve with climate change, with global warming, with greenhouse gas emissions. Engineers are the people that will produce those solutions. It's very much why I became an engineer, Bruce. At some point when I realised that there was a problem that needed solving, once I'd seen enough of the world in order to understand that there was a huge global problem to solve, that's really when I took my direction in my career and I became an engineer, became a chartered engineer and gained all those different skills which use that practical problem-solving advantage that I have to apply to the most important problem we have today, which is climate change. And that's very interesting because we, we and which is why I'm excited to have an engineer on the show, because quite often we talk about people needing to change the way they live and change behaviours. Um, but then actually, when you start to read sort of more academic books around the climate emergency, you get very quickly into, well, we can make so much impact by changing the way we do things. But actually, what we need to do is re-engineer the way that we interact with the planet and the solutions and the things and the machines and you know and indeed invent some things that you know we currently don't know how to do you know which might be um fusion energy or it might be you know low cost direct carbon capture uh, from air and do you think we need the behavioral side of things as well or is it actually leave it to the engineers and we'll we'll plow on and get this stuff sorted I think that the behavioural side is very important. I think people can make a difference. We can all be less wasteful with our energy. We can all think about our food sources. We can think about our travel and transport. There's lots of things we can do to reduce our carbon emissions. Engineers are responsible for bringing about solutions that will assist us with those things. We need new technologies. We can't continue with fossil fuel-based technologies, so we'll need new ways of producing energy because we still need 
to live our lives. We'll still need to provide warm homes. We'll still need to provide food. We still need clean drinking water. All of those things are things that engineers bring about. So renewable sources of energy, emerging technologies, being able to practically apply an emerging technology, those things will all help us reduce our carbon emissions. But you went a bit further with your question, Bruce, and you said, what about carbon capture? So at the moment, we have greenhouse gas emissions. We already have climate change. We need to slow that down, so hence the behavioural things, because that will change things immediately. And then there is removing the carbon from the atmosphere that is already there. Because even if we stop emitting carbon emissions right this minute, there will still be carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, providing that warming effect, which brings about climate change. So taking it back out of the atmosphere is a solution that we will need some of. We can't rely entirely on slowing our emissions down. We are going to have to remove some of those emissions from the atmosphere to prevent the worst effects of climate change. And engineers will be the people that produce those types of technology. And do you think there's, um, I mean, I think that's absolutely right, because we can only do so much with reforestation or practices such as regenerative farming. And is the is the engineering um, solutions for direct air capture moving ahead apace? Or is it a bit like fusion energy, where it's always just 10 years away before we get a before we get a breakthrough? So there are already some carbon capture technologies out there. There are carbon capture facilities that are operating today. We need more of them. And all technologies will always evolve to improve them, make them more efficient, so that when we build them, we actually take more carbon dioxide out by each of these technologies. So it is evolving, yes, as these things always will. But they, it does already exist. It's already there and it's already operating. The challenge, I think, with direct air capture is that the, I can't remember that you will remember the, the carbon dioxide in air is a very, very low proportion. I think it's le- is it less than 3% or less than a third of a percent? Right. So we wish it was less than 3%, Bruce. We have 400 ppm, don't we, at the moment? Parts per million, yeah. Yes, parts per million. So um, it is a very small percentage, you're right. And the the reason it does have an effect on global warming is because of the particular way carbon dioxide and the other greenhouse gases can hold on to energy, even though it sounds like a very small amount. I'm not sure that presents in itself a problem with carbon capture. So we are successfully capturing carbon from the atmosphere and reducing the carbon concentration in the atmosphere with the technologies we currently have. And we do need to get that parts per million back down to what it was in 1990 for example when it was around 300 320 parts per million yeah i think the issue there really is the cost of you have to move an awful lot of air through filtration systems or over sort of chemical catalysts to 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 capture the small proportion of co2 which i think is why it becomes an expensive um, process at the moment yes so improvements are always beneficial um but i think the cost of doing it is going to be less than the cost of not doing it ultimately. But you've made a point there, haven't you, Bruce, that it's really important that we do all those other things too, about reducing our emissions as well as removing what there is there. 
And I think that's absolutely right. And can we trust engineers? Because arguably, you know, they've done a lot of work getting us into the me- into this mess that we already have with building all sorts of machines and wonderful things that consume and run off fossil fuels. So engineers have got that creative, practical problem solving that, as you say, got us into this mess in the first place. They were able to be the ingenious people that worked out how they could get energy to move items, so involve machinery, for example, to do work for us. Um, But it's the same set of skills. There's an understanding that fossil fuels, carbon dioxide, and the impact on the atmosphere of that carbon dioxide means that we can't do that type of machinery in the same way. But we have other ways of producing energy that isn't carbon based so we talked about hydrogen for example as one of the options we talk about renewable energy and producing electricity from renewable sources such as solar or wind or from water sources for example so the same ingenious ways of devising machinery relies on the same set of skills so yes i think we can definitely trust our engineers to get get us out of the mess we got ourselves into (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 it is partly in jest as well. But I think the interesting thing from the history of engineering is whenever there's been a problem given, it is you know massively ingenious, the solutions that come out of it. And arguably, we're just at the beginning of the finding solutions for the climate emergency. So it's going to be very exciting to see what, you know, what comes forward over the next couple of decades from an engineering perspective. It will be, and plenty of ingenious stuff is coming forward. Things like um, deep geothermal energy, for example. So the countries that have the the most available renewable energy are those countries where the geothermal energy is close to the surface. We're talking about Scandinavian countries, for example. But even Switzerland are now digging for geothermal energy. So it's not close to the surface there. It's very mountainous, but actually underneath those mountains there is access to geothermal energy and we can recreate this availability of energy in in places that aren't traditionally available on the surface, but there are other solutions to provide us with that low carbon energy. And in theory, something like geothermal, is it available everywhere? It's just a case of if you go deep enough. How far down you go, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it is, in theory, yes. And how much of a balance is there? How available is it? Um, so are there accesses to that geothermal energy under the ground through the use, for example, of old mine shafts? Is that a possibility? Or would it involve some enormous expenditure of energy in the first place, in which case, of course, the balance w- would be incorrect and you wouldn't want to be accessing your energy that way? But yes, it, it, in theory, it is available everywhere. We talked about behaviour change a second ago, and um, I, I'm going to quote from one of the articles you, you you wrote when I found online, which I thought was a brilliant quote, which said that if you have an asset that gives out too much heat, makes too much noise or vibrates, it's inefficient and energy has been wasted in its, in its use. And that just, for my mind, is like a brilliant sort of uh, summary of what we're trying to solve here. And... It's sort of this is sort of making everybody mini engineers and it's linking the behavioral piece to the engineering piece because actually I know your business at Tunley is is doing carbon footprinting and figuring out for people how they need to reduce their emissions. But actually if something's sitting in the corner vibrating and noise and giving off heat, then 
probably look at that initially. <laughs> yeah. Can we all be can we all be engineers? Well, we can. So, as an engineer, I've worked for decades in a number of different industries, and I work with some very knowledgeable technicians and mechanics, for example. So engineers tend to be the people that do all the number crunching and so on. But then there are the technicians that do work with machines and they'll know from listening to the machine that there's something wrong, that it's breaking down, that it's running inefficiently. Uh, And it's an intuitive thing that they can hear it's running badly. They can put a hand on it and feel it vibrating or feel that it's hot. We all of us can do this. We do this with our appliances at home don't we we go oh that's running hot so we know that there's something wrong there so we all know that actually that indicates there's an inefficiency going on and and my job of course is to provide the engineering solution to that so that we use that energy to drive the machine to move forwards whatever it is we're trying to move with that machine we might be pumping water for example or, or we might be grinding up something or we might be making a gadget from a factory. We want that energy to end in the end result of pumped water or or widget production rather than in heat, noise, vibration. So if we intervene at that point, then we are going to be reducing our carbon emissions. And of course, we're saving money. We're running a more efficient factory. It's often said that the worst that us engineers can do is engineer a more efficient future. If climate change was a complete hoax, there's no such thing. What we'll have done is accidentally, inadvertently, engineered a more efficient future. And what could be bad about that? And high energy prices um, are obviously in the news a huge amount at the moment, and we're likely to have high energy prices um, for, for some time. And quite often the environmental debate is brought back to um, the carbon emitted from energy production. But in fact, there's many other elements to the climate problem. And, and, and a lot of your career was spent on water and, and water stress globally and infrastructure solutions for water. And we tend not to talk about um, water stress and the shortage of water in the UK because we live in a temperate wet area. And if you lived in Australia or California or other parts of the world, you'd, you'd definitely be uh, higher up the agenda. Is it a major issue for the climate and is it causing problems for the climate or is it something that we can actually engineer our way out of pretty quickly? So water stress is a direct consequence of climate change. It happens at both ends because we get the extremes of weather. So we get much warmer and drier, for example. So we'll have a heat wave and a wildfire. We get greater desertification of areas because they're drier and we sometimes as humans live in more extreme areas where we've been living on the edge of survivability and that edge moves so it's no longer survivable, crops will no longer grow and people must migrate. And that of course then puts water stress in a different area where they have migrated to. So at one end we've got less water because we'll have a drier area. At the other end we've got more water when we have extreme rainfall and that might not because of the quantity that falls in the amount of time that it falls in may not be useful to us for reintroducing the water where it's lost it might well run off it can't be captured and caught 
the infrastructure isn't built for the extremes we're currently seeing. The infrastructure is built to last decades. And yet the last 30 years, we've seen such an increase in the impact of climate change that the infrastructure can't be built to keep up. What was a one in 100 year storm might be a one in 50 year storm. A one in 50 year storm might be a one in 20 year storm. If the infrastructure is built to have capacity for one 50 year event, but it happens two or three times in those 50 years, it will be overwhelmed. So the water stress um, impacts us all. It does impact us in the UK. We've seen flooding in the UK. We've seen overwhelmed infrastructure, flooding of our streets and roads, of our transport, of our businesses. So we will see it even here. Then there are areas, as you say, much drier areas. Take Los Angeles, for example, who are experiencing water stress. And the introduction of activities such as growing drought-resistant plants in gardens instead of having lawns, because another unnecessary use of something like a water resource, which again is a resource we want to use sustainably, is watering of a lawn. So I personally don't have a lawn in in my home. I um, have some wildflowers and some lavender and a number of other plants that grow in my garden but I don't have a lawn that I need to maintain and mow that's helpful for me I'm busy so it's great I don't have to mow my lawn but also you avoid that monoculture you have greater biodiversity and you avoid the carbon emissions of the activity of mowing as well for example so there is a use to us even in the UK of having gardens that are more drought resistant that don't need watering or maintaining in the same way And the water stress affects globally much more than it affects us here. So there's there's more to life than gardens. But, of course, water availability and the increasing salination of water as the sea levels rise and the ice caps melt, that also makes that water less available to us and the rest of nature as there's more salt in the water. And that drives us to need technologies to remove salt from water to make drinking water for ourselves And that in itself can have that unfortunate positive feedback effect of that requiring energy to to do. So let's make better use of what water we have so that we aren't driving the need to use energy to make the water potable for ourselves, because that in itself would have that negative effect of increasing climate change. And we'd go round in an ever worsening circle it's very interesting actually what's evolving from this conversation is that actually if you take water it's a really good example but it's the same for energy it's the same for machines that aren't running efficiently is there's an element of engineers designing new efficient better machines in the future but there's also a element of the behavioral piece and we're all almost all becoming sort of individual environmental engineers by right planting the right things in our gardens not having a concrete driver, the water just runs straight off into the drains, having you know, insulated homes, more efficient cars, whatever it is. And so it's almost rather than it being sort of a, it's a, I suppose an analogy is like healthcare, which is, you know, if, if you look after your body, then you're not going to need a hospital. In the same way as if we all do some sort of micro environmental engineering projects, then we're actually going to reduce the anthropogenic load on on the planet. And if 
millions of us all make small changes around how we engineer our homes or our lifestyles, then we'll still need engineers, but they can focus on the bigger things where we need the sort of more infrastructure. I think we'll always need engineers. We want to engineer for the future. We want to engineer for our children and for our grandchildren. And we want to engineer in a way that, that allows that sustainability. But if we all to make a very small difference together, add it up, it actually does make a measurable difference. People sometimes, for example, say there's no point switching the TV off of standby because on their personal electricity bill, it, they won't notice the difference. If they're saving a penny a day, a pound over the year, for example, what difference does it make? But if you take the number of people living in the country and the number of television sets there are in the country, then actually it adds up. It adds up in a way that would actually reduce the amount of electricity needing to be produced. It might remove a power station. And then we have kind of a snowball effect in as much as a tiny behavioural difference individually will lead to reducing carbon emissions. But also, if you don't need to make that power, you don't need the transport of items to that power station or transport of staff and workers to that power station. And itself, you don't have the embodied carbon emissions associated with building it or building a further one. So just that careful husbandry of everything that we do is going to have a bigger effect. And it, it's bigger than us as individuals. Climate change is a global um, consideration. It's an effect on everybody. So we do need to work together to solve it. And each of us c can make what we think of as a tiny change, but it has a big overall effect. And I'm glad you mentioned future generations there because you have got a very original um, comment after your biography uh, online, which um, I absolutely love it. I think I might, I think I might steal it. Which was, in brackets, you say you were born when there was 327.4 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere, which I think is probably I checked. I think we're probably similar age, but we won't get into that online. <laughs> I love it. We're now at 420 for listeners that don't know. So it's gone up nearly 100 parts per million in a few short years that, that both me and Toral have been on the planet. When do you think babies, if everybody adopted this born at X parts per million, when do you think babies are going to be born where it's going to be a similar part per million as when you were born, 327.4? What's your best guess on that? Well, we're aiming for net zero carbon by 2050 aren't we? And that's relative to a 1990 baseline. So I believe it'll take us another 30 years to get back down to where we were then. We really want to get back to, to where we were when I was a child. That's our ambition. That's our aim. And it's what all of our strategies and plans are geared towards. They are geared towards reducing carbon emissions to that target that we know. So it sounds probably like quite a long time, 30 years, but we need to start planning for that now. We talked about infrastructure and how it will sit underneath our roads for 50 years at a time. We need to be building it now for the future. So we need to be thinking about technology now for the future. We can't wait until sort of 2045 and then suddenly build a whole load of carbon removing facilities because it won't work like that. The, the climate change will continue for many years after the carbon dioxide has been emitted. It will sit in the atmosphere providing that warming long after 
it was emitted. So we need to be introducing the technology today so that we can, in 30 years' time, protect the next generation. They have a planet to live on as well. They have all of the lovely resources that we that we enjoy today, and it's still available for them, for our children and their children in 30 years' time and then for the foreseeable future. And I think by my reckoning, we probably need to be living to about the age of 100 or 105 to see it come back down to the levels when we were born at. So, <laughs> Well, yes, I was disappointing, for example, with, um, with India, who said that they would go for net zero carbon by 2070, because I was thinking, I'll be dead by then. <laughs> Get it done while I can still see the impact. Well, 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 you know, in our lifetime, we, we want yeah. to bring it in our lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And it would just be great to see it starting to come back down again to those 1970s levels. Toral, I want to understand, and, and particularly if there's any sort of uh, young uh, women listening to the show who are thinking about an engineering career or starting their engineering, engineering career, how, how, what's your story? How on earth did you get into engineering and how have you ended up in the environmental field? What made you wake up to the issue? So I started as a scientist, Bruce. I wanted to um, take a challenging academic degree when I went to university. I wanted to prove myself academically. So I decided to take a degree in physics originally okay. because I knew that was a challenging subject. And I had grown up in a family that did not own a car or travel on holiday. So there were a lot of effects on the atmosphere that I was at that time unaware of when I went away to university. Of course, university and travel both broaden the mind. So you learn about a broader um, society and other activities that you hadn't previously been aware of. So I simply gained that extra knowledge and information that told me that actually we're already a society doing lots of damage to the atmosphere, uh, to the environment, and that that activity needed more focus. And I actually changed my degree subject from physics to biochemistry because it gave me a much broader range of options for a career. At that time... We didn't really have serious environmental science degree courses. It was seen as something that you might take if you um, aren't an academic. You might take it if you're looking for a, a relatively easy course. It didn't have the robustness we, we have now. But my career took me into engineering. It took me at first into an industrial process plant where they employed chemical engineers. And as I was the scientist, I was in quality control. I was doing wet chemistry. I was doing chemical techniques in a laboratory and research. But I really liked the type of work the chemical engineers in the industrial process were doing. It was much more interesting. So I, I gained a position whereby I could actually do some more of the industrial processes, whereby I could be working directly with the furnace, where I could be analysing gas concentrations in the industrial process. And it's from there that I gained the um, view of what type of PhD I wanted to do. So at first, obviously, I knew I simply needed a job that used my skills. By working there, I realized that process engineering was the degree for me. And I wanted to be able to harness all that I'd 
gained in understanding the environmental harm that was being done. So my PhD was in the use of recycled material to treat contaminated water. So I devised a process that would take uh, recycled metal and use it to remove contaminants from water so that it was acceptable for remediation in the environment. And these were the types of, of contaminants that would not be broken down in a wastewater treatment process. So, and from there, as you say, I followed further 20 years in the water industry, again, in research and also in process optimization. So really, I arrived through a journey. I arrived through a journey at my career and I had not, when I left school, known about chemical engineering, which is what I am now. I'm a chartered chemical engineer now. But it's one of those things I gained insight to over time. I believe that there is more advice and information to those people in school today. So young women today will already be better informed than I was. They may not take such a long journey arriving there. <laughs> But, but that doesn't mean that I think there's a lot to be gained on a journey. So Absolutely. if you go directly to your Absolutely. destination, you may see less on the way. Yeah, absolutely. And discovering what you find along the way. That's very intriguing and very interesting. And what for you does success look like? And, and what's the biggest hurdle to get there? For, so for me, I, I want to see support from the highest level for what we need to do. I don't believe that we currently have the government policies to support the environmental change we need. I believe that there's far too much emphasis on maintaining the use of fossil fuels and not enough on the alternatives that we need to put into place if we are to make the step changes we need. So even if individuals want to make changes, they currently find that it's not really available to them. If you don't want to drive your car, but there's no public transport available, you can't make that change. So I, I think we need much more robust government policies in order to facilitate environmental change that people want to make, to make it possible for them to make. And what, what do you think listeners can do differently to, to sort of help on that journey? I couldn't agree more that we need to get we need to get the leaders and the and the politicians engaged around this because as individuals we can only do so much. But can listeners do something differently to, to get politics to change? There is one thing that isn't mentioned that often really, but it's move your money. Money provides the power for the industries that support fossil fuels. Where are your investments made? When you leave money in the bank, where are those investments made that pay the interest on any savings or even on your current account, if you have one that pays interest? Where is your pension? Where is that invested? Move the money. And the money, once it's moved, removes its power. And you said it earlier, will fuel prices make the change? Well, actually move the, the major money remove the large investment and possibilities for fossil fuels. I would say more than changing your diet, more than driving less, probably take the power away from the investment in fossil fuels. Brilliant. And um, 
What is coming up that you're most excited about in the next few months, six months, year? What's what's the big thing that you can share with the listeners that's uh, getting you excited at the moment? So obviously we can look forward to COP27. Um, we can hope that it delivers what COP26 failed to. There was a lot of hope around COP26 that we would see, especially immediately following the IPCC report, that there would be big changes made and there just weren't the changes that we hoped for so we can look forward to COP27 and expect that those changes that we wanted because there's much more um, need for it now we wanted it at COP26 and then being let down means that's just sort of built a momentum around the desirability of the changes that were called for then been called for at COP27. So I, I'm looking forward to any of those changes. Um, the next carbon budget by the UK government, lots of promises again, but will they implement them and will they keep to them? Because even if we keep to the promises that our government have made, we still won't be doing enough. So let's at least keep to those promises. So that, those are, are the big things to look out for in, in the coming uh, few months. Brilliant. So, um, Tora, we have on the show something called the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, where we ask um, guests to leave something in there for future generations. Um, what thing would you leave in there? Person, item, a thought? It can be anything. <laughs> I think I'd like to leave tidal power in there, Bruce. I think that it's one of the cleanest forms of renewable energy we can have. And it's in a subject close to my heart, of course, because it's based on water. Brilliant. Um, and do you think the, um, or maybe it is already, is it an economic way of um, producing energy? It, yes, it's currently employed in a couple of different places. So the Orkney Islands have, have a wonderful tidal power system they have up there. And um, Gibraltar, for example, also have hydropower. So these are these are solutions that can be deployed in different places, um, not to mention the Niagara Falls, of course, which produces very low carbon energy for that part of Canada. So, yes, definitely, let, let's stick with hydropower. Brilliant. Well, we have, we have, uh, we, we have. Uh, it's the first ever is tidal uh, power in, in the Hall of Fame. Torol, it's been amazing have you on the show. Thank you very much. Really interesting. And as I said at the start, our first engineer in the show. So hopefully, there'll be many more to follow. Thank you very much for coming on Zero Five O. You're very welcome. It's been great meeting you. I'm Bruce Bradley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet incredible people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.